Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Tea and Murder, part book club, part interview show, all Agatha Christie. I'm your host, Rebecca Tundy-Norman. Welcome. We are here with Kelsey McKinney. Kelsey is a co-owner and staff writer for Defector Media. She is the author of the book God Spare the Girls and the host of my favorite podcast, I think ever, Normal Gossip. Welcome, Kelsey. So nice to have you here. Thank you so much. Hello, Rebecca. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so glad you're here and I'm so glad you're thrilled about it. So let's dive into it. First, I want to ask you about your relationship to Agatha Christie. Tell me how you came Mm -hmm. to her writing, when you started reading her, how you feel about her today. Sure. So I was a very um, voracious reader as a child. And because my parents were not wealthy, they I was brought to the public library like twice a week. And my mom was like, you check out these books and you read them and you stop complaining about how I don't take you to Barnes and Noble. And I was like, okay. Um, and I loved that, right? I like competed in the little like reading, you know, you get a star for every book you read in the summer and you get to like pr- be the best at reading. So that was a real... I was a very precocious and annoying child, which is to say <laughs> that I, I blew through like every YA and middle grade book that existed when right. I was a kid. Like there just were not enough of them mm-hmm. to sustain my insanity. And my poor mother, who is like not a reader, was like, that's a, she does read some, but she's not like a voracious reader. Right. She's like, literate. What can you're I, saying, yeah. Yes. Yeah. She can read. <laughs> um, she, she was like, what can I give my daughter who is desperate to consume words at all times that will take her a really long time to get through? And my mother loving SVU, loving Agatha Christie was like, Agatha Christie wrote a gajillion books. She did. This is perfect. And so she just like bestowed it upon me. Like and all because- at once, like you get the whole collection all at once. Oh, she was just like, this is an author that exists that you're permitted to read. Oh, and then okay. I was so like, she like introduced <laughs> you to Agatha Christie. Amazing. Exactly. And because I like just, I read so fast. I still read really fast, yeah. but I read so quickly that like I needed something with a nice, large, 
back catalog to like <laughs> obsess over. Yeah. And so my mom kind of gifted me Agatha Christie and was like, I think you'll like this. They're really fun. I like them. And so I was just, you know, 10 years old reading about murder a lot as yeah. all 10 year olds are want to do. Sure. Well, I think her books are really for young adults and a lot of people mm-hmm. start reading her as kids. And I do find that so fascinating because they are obviously about murder. But for whatever reason, <laughs> parents seem to think it's like the kind of murder that kids could like. It's like kids murder. Yeah. I mean, I did also watch a lot of Law and Order with my mom, so I don't know that she had a a great barrier between, like, how much murder children should consume or not. We loved a murder mystery in our family. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, they're simply written in a way that is easy for kids to read, right? Like, I think – I'm sure we'll get into this when we talk about the story today. But while I was reading it, I was like, oh, it's so fascinating how easy this is to read, yes. right? Like how it's almost like a screenplay in how like simplified it is. And so I think she, my mom was right in that she was like, here are 200 books or however many books Agatha Christie wrote that are all at your reading level. Good yes. luck. <laughs> <laughs> and how long did it take you to get through Agatha Christie? You know, I think I read most of them. I read all of the ones that my library had. And then by the time I had finished that, like school was back in session and I was distracted by the other books that I was being assigned. So I think you read her whole catalog in one summer. I cannot explain to you how much I read as a child. <laughs> like, it was terrible. I thought I read a um, lot as a child, but that is like, did you sleep? Dissociative, yes. Mm, interesting. <laughs> no. Um, I, you know, I had one of those little like flip lights that you could yes. open underneath yeah. your covers when your parents um, were when you were supposed to be asleep. Right. And you could read your little murder mystery. Mm-hmm. But Agatha Christie's aren't like scary. No. You know, they're not like the kind of thing that's going to keep you up at night. And so I read quite a lot of them. Yeah. I think I read over the course of probably two summers, I think I read most of her, most of her. Wow. Over. And was it something where, did she kind of imprint on you in anywhere where you would go back to her work or was it like you kind of left her in the dust for other reading? I, you know, I'm not a huge rereader in general. Like I just don't reread a lot. Um, but I do go back to Agatha Christie every once in a while. Her and Patricia Highsmith, both of them I'll go back to Okay. because I think the way that they write stories is really just like fundamentally solid. Like you can't write a book a year the way Christie did if you don't have an understanding of structure. Sometimes three (laughs) books a year. I just... I get stressed when I, I think about it. I I'm know. Like, <laughs> like, I have such a deep-seated jealousy of that ability. It's like, it's unhealthy. It might be why I'm doing this podcast now that I'm thinking about it. <laughs> wow. We're really, we're going right into it <laughs> yeah, for both of us. I love really, that. Really deep. Yeah. You're right, though. It's like, I I don't know. I, I write a script for our podcast every week, and mm-hmm. it is, you know, like 5,000 words long because it's an hour-long podcast. Yeah. And I feel like I'm going to die every week. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired from writing this. And like those are being workshopped with other people right. and like fixed with other people. And Agatha Christie was just like kind of turning in full manuscripts that were basically done. Yeah. That had like three twists. And also the structure for murders was not as solid as it, it was after her. So right. I'm kind of like she was the foremother in a way of an entire genre, which is yeah. fun. And 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 I mean her formats are incredible. Her structures are, you know, very well thought out. But to me, the fact that she's always able to sketch these incredibly complete characters time after time Mm -hmm. after time. And I think in the stories that we'll talk about in the book, we'll talk about um, 
she writes 13 stories, and in every single one of them, the characters are so vivid in really, like, yes. probably five, yeah, 5,000 words, maybe. Um, they're really if short that, stories. Yeah. yeah, if that. So I, I really think her ability to do that so quickly is, I mean, it's mind-boggling. And she is not like a... I, this is something that I admire about Christy and try mm. to emulate is that she's not a physical descriptor, yes. right? Like she doesn't describe the way people look. Yes. She's never like, oh, the blonde woman, right? She's like, <laughs> oh, the woman who like always held her handkerchief too tightly, right? <laughs> right. And it's like this small little thing that yes. you can latch onto as a reader much for, more formally than you could the way that someone yeah. looks. I do think she doesn't do that as much with men, but I do think with women, there's a lot of like, she'll often attribute like feline or animal mm-hmm. characteristics to women and she often talks oh, about especially with young women she'll often talk about like their clear eyes and like oh yeah you know, there's kind of you know their their shining hair like there's elements that she'll bring in again and again that she clearly sees as like class markers mm-hmm. um and also in the yeah. way that they dress um, and that is always really interesting to me, like wh- the things that she comes back to as descriptors again and again, because for whatever reason, they've ingrained themselves in her as important mm-hmm. to a character. It's also, I mean, I don't know if this is just like revealing something about myself or if this is just the way that brains work, but like I will find myself <laughs> when I'm revising any of my own work being like, oh, I have a great idea for like a metaphor or something that could go into this space. Mm-hmm. And then I keep reading and like, it's already on the page. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's an idea that I already had and wrote <laughs> yeah. down. And that, and I had it in this exact same spot, right? right? And so it's like my brain just retraced to the same little, like, yeah. ski route that it had created before. Yes. And I think some of that really comes out when you read a lot of Christie, where it's like, 100%. oh, you've got these kind of tracks yes. that are dug in really deep and that are really hard for you to get out of. Yeah. And that can be for good or for bad. Yeah. No, I think that's true. There's a great story about Prince where he's sitting mm-hmm. at a piano and he's playing a little tune and he looks up and he says to the person recording, that's so great. And then he pauses and he goes, did I write that? <laughs> and it's like this idea that when you've produced so much music, eventually you're going to produce yeah. the same thing. Um, and I think it's true oh, of Christy as well. A- when you've produced so much, eventually there's only so many twists before yeah. you go, you're 360 degrees. You know what I mean? Right. So I was kind of laughing earlier when you, when we were doing the prep and you said, you know, like some people get really bent out of shape about spoilers because like one of the things that I find so interesting about a Christie book is mm-hmm. like, if you've read enough of them, you can spoil it yourself in the first <laughs> yeah. two pages, right? Yeah. Like you can know what she's doing. It's like her hand is clear yeah. in the work. Yeah. And so it's like, you're right. It's kind of funny. It's like, have you, I think I've seen this film before, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And I think it doesn't stop you from enjoying the book, actually. Like, it doesn't matter Mm. because it's about the uncovering of the plot and it's about how the characters, you know, are trying to obscure things. And and there's so many other elements that make it worth reading that whether or not even like I I personally reread her books a lot and they're kind of like Mm -hmm. my comfort reading. Um, And so, I mean, I know all of the plots like it's not for me I'm not trying to guess anymore uh it's just about the the like the journey that gets you there that I find so fun right like it's 
It's like the concept of Easter eggs, right? Like people yeah. are always like, oh, she's like placing these Easter eggs. And it's like, no, I don't know that a writer like Christy is intentionally going back and yeah. placing Easter eggs as much as she just is so good at her job yeah. that like she can think far enough ahead mm-hmm. to give you clues up front as to what will happen, yeah. which is like not exactly the same as like a Marvel cinematic universe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. And I think... What what Christy often does, and she talks about this often in, like, her forewords to the books or prefaces, mm-hmm. is she'll say, like, I gave myself a problem. And she likes to give yeah. herself a problem and solve it. Um, and that's what mm-hmm. a lot of her books are, is, like, I gave myself an idea or a concept, and then I had to work within that concept to make a book happen. Um, so, just, yeah, isn't that incredible? That's stunning. It's <laughs> I know that Christie is like, you know, politically not exactly someone who is admirable and someone who made a lot of mistakes in her life, but as a fucking workhorse, like Mm -hmm. she is unparalleled almost. Like the amount of stories she produced is just incredible. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, say more about that because that is a lot of what I am fascinated by in this podcast and talk to people about because I love her work, but she's problematic Mm -hmm. um, in a lot of ways. And, like, how do we approach that, I guess, as readers now? Like, what's the yeah. What's the I line? Mean, it's, it's, like, the age-old question, yeah. right, of, like, can you separate the art from the artist, right? right? And, like, I have always kind of, maybe to my own detriment, viewed that as can the art itself stand up? Yeah. Right? So, like, I think a lot of people whose work is problematic are problematic, yeah. right? So like if you are the kind of person who is racist, often it comes through in your books. I think some of Christie's books, it does come through in. 100%. That, like she had some big racist thoughts. And like those are not books that I'm really interested in spending a lot of time with. Yeah, I agree. Um, I think that's kind of how I, how I view it. I don't know if that's the right way to view it um, or if there is one, but – my stance has always kind of been like, is there beauty and goodness in the work itself? And yeah. like, just like how terrible people can sometimes have brilliant and beautiful children, sometimes terrible people make great art. And like, yeah. that's an uncomfortable truth that I don't love. Like, I right. want to believe that if I become the most morally perfect person, I could also create um, a perfect work of art because mm-hmm. those two things are connected and they just aren't necessarily. And yeah. that's, I don't love it. I don't think anyone loves it. And that's kind of the gray zone of like cancellation, right? It's like you hate Woody Allen, but do you also hate Annie Hall, right? And like those are difficult questions to grapple with. I don't know the answer to them. No, I don't know the answer to them either, obviously. I think – If you do, I'll take it. I would love to have Oh, yeah. No, I actually have the answer written down (laughs) and I will share it with you after this podcast. Thank you so much. (laughs) You're so welcome. Um, Yeah, I think you're totally right that it's like this thing of how much of the writer or artist's viewpoint comes through in their work. And I think one of the things that I often find about Christie's work is it's sometimes difficult to define whether what she's writing is her own viewpoint or whether it's the Mm -hmm. viewpoint of the character. And I think that's something that, like, our generation doesn't do a great job in terms of literary analysis of separating out the ideas of a character versus the ideas of the author. Um, And that's, like, something – yeah. 
I've written fiction and people are constant, right? My, my book is a novel and people it's are constantly great, by the way. like, <laughs> thank you. And people are constantly like, well, which part is true? Right. Which part is real? Yeah. And I'm like, none of it. Yeah. Like Fic- it's, it's all, fiction. It's fiction. Right. And like people can't, it has been really fascinating because I don't think I realized this before yeah. the book was published yeah. that like people have a really hard time separating the idea of like, this is a character's thought and not necessarily the author's thought, right? And Christy does a lot of like very tight third in her books where Mm -hmm. it's like, okay, it's in third person, Mm -hmm. but the narrator is this one specific guy. And so then which parts are her? Right. And like, that's up for debate, but you can't say definitely, oh, this whole book is what she believes if like it's in first person or it's in tight third. Like you just can't because it's like, well, that's not what the book is. Mm -hmm. It's not what fiction is for. Um, But I also think on some level, like every book is a brainchild of the person who wrote it. Of course. Of course. It's all you, whether you like it or not. Like some of the things that I think reveal themselves in Christie's work, I don't think she meant to reveal. And like, mm. that's just how writing works. It's like yeah. sometimes you put things on a page and people are like, oh, you're insecure about this. And you're like, oh, shit, am <laughs> <Yeah>. I? <laughs> totally. No, that's so right. Yeah, I am. Um... I think that's true. And I, I find that with Christy, as you said, because there are like so many books, just like mm-hmm. the breadth of it, there are things that come up again and again and again. And you kind of go like, oh, well, this was obviously a hang up, you know, and yeah. like the thing with like the clear, beautiful eyes and like there are just certain things like ways, particularly ways she talks about women where mm-hmm. I find myself being like, oh, this was like a p- potentially like an insecurity or like a hatred or there was something about this that. Like it was something her mom used to say or her grandmother used yeah. to say, whatever it might be. Um, I don't mean to put you on the spot, yeah. but I'm curious if you know if those references increase over time. Like I'm curious mm. if it is connected to her own aging at all because well, she wrote for so long. She did. That, like, she did. I So what I will say is she wrote a lot more marples much later mm-hmm. on. So she wrote her marples much yeah. more from the 50s onwards. And I think that's very connected to her aging Mm -hmm. and to her Hmm. feeling maybe that she was becoming a bit irrelevant and that people weren't so receptive to her work anymore. Yeah. Um, Even though she was selling like crazy, she wasn't necessarily getting the same kind of critical acclaim. Yeah. Um, So I I definitely think the increase of marples is related to that for sure. Hmm. Um, That was interesting. I would say references, I would have to do some like data analysis of like what she references (laughs) because yeah, that doesn't uh, live in my mind. I mean, it seems like you would have to do some kind of like academic survey, but I was just curious because I think that that's, it's interesting what you're saying, right? About like the obsession with youth, the obsession with clear eyes, the obsession (laughs) with like beauty, which Mm -hmm. I'm sure we could draw some direct parallels to um, the Mm -hmm. aforementioned racism problem, Mm -hmm. but they're is also a like obsession with youth Mm -hmm. there, right? Mm -hmm. Of Mm -hmm. like, I'm aware of my own aging and it hurts me. Yeah. I mean, her final, her final book is Curtain, um, which Mm -hmm. is, you know, not, not to spoil it, I guess, but is the death of Poirot. Um, And, and before that she writes Miss Marple's final cases and Sleeping Murder, which is, you know, when Miss Marple passes away. So, um, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of, and, and she wrote, 
Curtin in 75. She died in 76. So, I mean, she was writing basically until, like, she died pen in hand, basically. And incredible. I, yeah, I think these things were really on her mind and it, they clearly come through. And and especially with like the Poirot stuff, a lot of like, you know, the kind of the old friend coming back and being able to relive old relationships. Yeah. Curtin is actually a very like a tragic and and beautiful book um, in that way. Wow. But um, I, need to, I need to reread Curtin. I don't know if yeah, I read it actually. It's it's actually one of my favorites because it, it really subverts a lot of her format. Um. But I mean, if you're going to go out, go if out you're going to go out, go out, baby, um, <laughs> you know, take a couple shots. But um, so tell me a little bit how you think in general gossip, because you are the gossip queen. You know all about she's oh, the yes. she's the queen of mystery. You're the queen of gossip. Let's meet somewhere in the middle. How does mm-hmm. mystery and gossip, how are those two things related in your mind? So this is interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this because of like the popularity of the podcast, which has been frankly quite surprising to me. And I've been thinking about how like a lot of our listeners are also big murder podcast listeners, right? Like they will tell us, right? Like, oh, I listen to my favorite murder. Oh, I listen to like cold case stories. Um, And so I've been thinking a lot about that. And I think that some of it is that like there is a comfort to the way that we tell murder mysteries, right? Like there is a structure to it that is the same every time. Mm -hmm. And like as a writer, I'm sure you get sick of that, right? You see it happen to Highsmith. She got like halfway through her career and was like, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm going to do this weird (laughs) stuff instead. And like people didn't like it as much. And like that's the consequence there. Yeah. So I think structurally there's like a consistency that is very comforting to people. Mm -hmm. I think the way you talk about a murder mystery, the way a murder mystery is told is very much based in like he said, she said Mm -hmm. until it is solved. Right. Right. And so there are these kind of pieces that you're keeping as a writer for the end. Um, And we do that, right? Like the way that we anonymize we are often, what we are doing is reordering more than anything. Because if yeah. you come to me and tell me gossip, you might tell me like, oh, I have to tell you this thing about my next door neighbor who's been like hoarding, I don't know, Reese's peanut butter cups for six years. Oh my God, years, I wish that's right? what my next door neighbor was and hoarding. Like, right. Which yeah. would be fascinating. <laughs> but like, usually that reveal needs to be a fifth act reveal. I can't give it to you up front or it's boring, right? And so it's like you're kind of doing the same thing of like you Mm. reveal who the murderer is. You're building the the suspense. Classic truth. Exactly. Got it. And the tension you have to work with, unless the murder happens midway through the story, which happens in many of Christie's books, but if the murder happens before the story takes place, your tension is all in the past. Yeah. Which is like an interesting problem to deal with because it's like, who did it is the the driving question of the book. And so the tension you have to build has to come from somewhere else. It has to come from between the reader and the plot. Yeah. And like gossip is the same way, right? Like what makes gossip good isn't the story itself. It's the way that you and the person you're talking about it with respond to it. And that is Mm. the kind of same interaction, I think, that you're building. So is that what makes a good gossip is like someone who knows how to how to tell the story? I don't know. I mean, I feel like that might be giving myself too much credit. Um, <laughs> I think that I think there are a lot of things that make a good gossip. I think yeah. one of them is just like the recognition that more people 
are behaving irrationally and without awareness of consequence than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and like, and like murder, all the Christie books do this too, right? Like, it's like, it could be anyone, yeah. right? Any of these people could have done it. And like, learning more about the world through the gossip that we've gotten has made me like, not suspicious of everyone, but like, curious about everyone mm. where I'm like, if this, if we're getting this many emails, it's not a few people behaving weirdly. It's everyone. <laughs> right. Yeah. I suppose it's like everyone, you think of your life in a narrative sense, right? Mm -hmm. So like ultimately everyone kind of finds some interest yeah. in their own story. Mm -hmm. I wonder if everyone does think about their life in a narrative sense. I do for sure. Yeah. I think most like the main character conversation is definitely yeah. based around that. But yeah, it's like the justification that you gave your friends for the reason that you did something that they accepted wholesale right. might not stand up to scrutiny when given the other side, right? Which <laughs> right. is like a fascinating kind of way that it works to be alive. Absolutely. And so talk a little bit more about then specifically how gossip functions or do you think gossip functions in Christie books? Yeah, I think so. All a detective is is a like reporter, right? Mm -hmm. All a detective is is like a nosy Nelly, right? You're walking <laughs> in and you're saying like, "Hi, I have some questions," and yeah. they've given me this badge that allows me to ask them. Yeah. But like the strategies, and I, this is particularly true in the four suspects, which we're going to talk mm -hmm. about. That like the strategies they teach you as a detective are the same strategies that your mom has about like whether or not someone is going to be elected PTA president. Yeah. They're like whether you smoked strategies. pot or not last night. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Like the, the trail of clues that your mother <laughs> follows to like accuse you of like, who knows, sneaking out in the middle right. of the night is the same as a detective. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are like the breadcrumbs that gossip is made of is these kind of like moments that could mean something or could mean nothing yeah. and it is up to you to decide yeah. and I think that that's what makes a good gossip it's yeah. what makes a good murder mystery too right yeah. is enough of those things to make you question your initial reaction yeah. right where you start off by saying this person definitely did it this person's the bad guy mm -hmm. this person is the one I don't identify with mm -hmm. And then over the course of that story, you're forced to kind of reckon with those decisions that you made very quickly and without all of the right information. Yeah. yeah and I love you do this in normal gossip pretty much every episode. You ask towards the end, like, who do you think the villain mm -hmm. is? And that's I yeah. mean, that's basically a murder mystery, but like with, I don't know, squirrels instead of dead bodies or whatever. Yeah, um, it's we do it intentionally. Yeah. And it's one of the ways we vet, right, is like if. A story about a bad person who is just mean is not fun ever. It's just like it makes everyone feel bad. Yeah. <laughs> it makes everyone sad. It's not fun to tell, yeah. right? It's just like, oh, this person sucks. Mm -hmm. And like that's not fun. But it is fun to be like, which of these two people who both suck is worse? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so true. And I think also one of the ways that I – find that gossip functions in Christie books, and, and I think in Please. a lot of detective fiction, is that, I mean, you were saying kind of the detective goes in and they're a nosy Nelly, which I love. And I mean, in Poirot's case in particular, he goes in and he will say to people, um, you don't have to tell me anything. I'm actually not at all official. I have no, yeah. you don't, I, you can walk out of here. 
And every single person to a person still tells him their story um, because people Mm -hmm. like talking about themselves. And I think there's even a couple of books in which he says, if you give people the space to tell their story, they will just tell it because they want to. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Um, The greatest piece of advice I've ever gotten as a reporter Mm -hmm. that honestly pays off in my own personal life and I recommend using to your advantage at every possible turn (laughs) is when someone stops talking, count to three slowly Mm -hmm. in your head Mm -hmm. because often they have more to say and they stopped themselves. Yeah. Yeah. Or they feel uncomfortable and they will fill it. Yeah. Right. So if you sit in front of anyone and say like, hi, who are you? And then you just wait, they'll tell you. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) No, that's exactly right. And I think it's, um, I think it's Robert Caro's book working. He talks about how every great detective has, um, a method of getting people to speak through silence and they, mm-hmm. every great detective has, like, some particular way of being silent yep. that gets people to talk. Um, and that's, like, the mark of a great detective of fiction is what their, like, weird thing that they do is. Um, and I really loved that oh, description. So I started seeing it in, like, every detective book that I would read. It makes sense, though, because yeah. people who are good conversationalists do it, too. Yeah. Right? Like, there are people – I – I've like noticed a lot of my own because of the podcast, right? That like I am constantly just drinking liquids, constantly. Like any liquid that I can, I'm drinking. Whatever's in front of you, you're gonna drink it, right? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Which is like an interesting. I don't know. It's fascinating. (laughs) That it is really interesting. It is really interesting. So now we can talk a little bit more specifically about the four suspects, which is the story you read for this podcast. Loved it. You did. Oh, good. I'm so glad. It. I. It's. It's a great story, and it's in a wonderful book, which is actually one of my favorite, not only Marple books, but but Christie's in general. I'm just going to give a little bit of a rundown of like where it sits within her canon. Um, So The 13 Problems, which is the book that includes the story we're going to talk about, The Four Suspects, was published in 1932, which was the same year as Peril at End House, a Poirot mystery. And it was published right after Black Coffee, which came out as a play um, at the time that it came out, but it's now also a novel, and Murder at the Vicarage, which is the, the first marble. And right before, Lord Edgeware dies. So this is like, you know, she's producing, producing, producing. Um, The book was originally titled The Tuesday Night Club, which might sound familiar if you are a mystery fan because Richard Osman has an extremely popular mystery series, um, also starring the elderly as sleuths, which is called The Thursday Murder Club. 
Um, and The 13 Problems was very well received when it came out. There was a lot of praise for like just the sheer number of mysteries she managed to fit into this book and how all of them had these really tight plots for being so short, um, as well as kind of the way that Marple went about um, solving these crimes being kind of like it seemed realistic even though she kind of just gets it time after time after time it like it kind of it works um the book is really like a showcase for miss marvel and and in the preface to this book that is what agatha christie says she says this is like the essential miss marvel if you want to understand her as a character you should read this book and so there's kind of a real pleasure in the way she brings in these village parallels it's something that she ends up doing throughout the Marple series. It's how she kind of solves crime. She, people just like this were in the village and that's how I kind of understand who they are. Um, this is the second time after Murder at the Vicarage that we meet Raymond West, who's her modern novelist nephew, who's both loving and condescending. And I think a really great kind of um, her way of poking fun at modern writers. Um, and it's the second time we meet Sir Henry Clithering, who's the retired ex-commissioner of Scotland Yard. And he actually appears in six of the Marple books, not including this one, so seven in total. Um, and he is kind of a, the active foil for Miss Marple. And he has the kind of respect and position that people respond to. So they, you know, he can go out and ask the questions that she wants him to ask. And they wouldn't necessarily respond to uh, little old Jane Marple. So that is the book and kind of where it sits. But The Four Suspects is one of the stories. It falls in kind of the middle of the book. I think it's nine out of 13. Um, and why don't you give us a little brief synopsis of The Four Suspects? I think it's funny because it's like the book is, or the story is only what, 18 pages? Yeah, really pages short. Or something. So it's like the synopsis is basically half the book. Half the, story. <laughs> um, the synopsis is essentially that, you know, Sir Henry has a mystery that he cannot solve mm -hmm. because a German who has moved to England has been killed, but he was not killed immediately. He was killed six months later. Mm -hmm. And so there's kind of this tight set and tight character set of like, we have one house with locked doors on both sides. We have the four people who lived there and we have the dead guy. And so mm -hmm. it's a classic whodunit of a like, classic. which of these four people is it? Right. <laughs> they all had the means. They all potentially had the motive, right? Yes. And the story itself takes place in essentially what is like a gossip circle of him telling the story of what's happening and kind of the dead ends he has run into right. to Miss Marple and a few other people. Mm -hmm. That's right. They have this kind of, well, they call it the Tuesday night club where they get together and they, everybody tells an unsolved case that they happen to know the answer to, but nobody else <laughs> knows the answer to. And it's not widely known. Um, and, and it's very fun. It's like a dinner party type of game. I would love to go to this dinner party, to be honest. I know. It How much fun great. does it seem? Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. And to also have, like, the ex-commissioner of Scotland Yard being like, yeah, let me share some of my unsolved murders. So fun. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay. So there, it's all it's a classic whodunit. And, um, you know, Miss Marple basically very quietly solves the case for Sir Henry, <laughs> Henry Clithering um, to his... You know, he, he's I actually love him as a character because he always gives her due respect and mm -hmm. um, he doesn't he might kind of gently laugh a little bit about things, but he doesn't mock her and he really does take her seriously as an intellect. Um, and it's one of the kind of threads throughout the way he deals with her in the books, which I, I really love. And, and this story, 
I think really closes out nicely with that. He's like, I think he blushes at the end or something like that mm -hmm. um, when she solves it for him. So it's it's a really lovely one. Um, how would you say gossip plays into this story? Other than like kind of the format of them telling the story as a form of gossip. Sure. So there's the story of it, but also most of the motives he has are based on gossip, right? Yeah. It's like, we think that this is why. And kind of the main what becomes the main thrust and the main like questioning line of did these two young people smooch or not is <laughs> essential gossip, right? Totally. It's, well, they're both young and they're in this house, so they must have been up to something. Mm -hmm. Totally. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's even a letter that gets thrown in the fire and is he smooching somebody else? We don't know. Huge goss. Huge goss. What do you think? Do you think there's more that I'm missing? More well, goss I, I think one of the things about, in particular, Marple stories, but I think you can find it throughout Christie's work, is the idea that the innocent suffer if a crime is not solved. Mm -hmm. um, and that Whoa. has to do with how villages kind of function. Like if, if we're not 100% yeah. sure that someone else did it, it might have been that guy. And therefore, their career or their you know, like their kind of place in the village is in question. Um, and yeah. Miss Marple really solves the case most specifically for um, his longtime, this man's kind of longtime companion, uh, or like, I think she's a, she a maid or like, like a housekeeper, mm -hmm. basically because if suspicion falls upon her, she will never be able to get another job in the village. Yeah. Um, and so it's this real kind of empathy and compassion for the reason we solve crimes is not just to get justice for the guilty, but also to clear the innocent of suspicion. Um, and so yeah. what is suspicion if not just like this whisper network? It's gossip, basically. There's um, a line, I can't find it immediately, but there's a yeah. line in here somewhere about like law and order exists outside of the legal system. Yeah. That like people will create their own law and order through That's their right. little whisper network. And, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. So. Yeah, so I think that um, plays into this story, and it's, I think, really kind of the anchor of why Miss Marple's even interested in it, really. Um, and and she also, I love kind of how she thinks it's so obvious how, like, <laughs> this young man is obviously seeing his cousin, and why else would he destroy the letter? And she kind of <laughs> has the you know, the elderly lady's take on, like, romance that Sir Henry Clithering has overlooked because he's, like, you know, this old commissioner and he doesn't get it. Um, but that's how you do – that's how you gossip with your friends too, yeah. right? Where you're like, well, he said – he showed up late. Why would he have shown up late? Right. Why would Why he have thrown that letter? Why would he text me back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like <laughs> – Yeah. Completely. Completely. Yeah. And she – I mean, that's basically what she's doing. And I think the whole um, – the 13 problems is basically – a book of gossip. Um, it's really fun in that way. It's a bunch of people who get together and tell stories to each other and uh, take a lot of joy in telling the stories. And I love, I don't know if you ended up reading the whole book, but there's one, they do say like throughout, like we anonymize them, da, 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 da. Mm -hmm. But there's one story where like this really beautiful, but kind of dim-witted actress tries to anonymize a story about herself and ends up saying like and then I said oh my god oh. and like you know like, and everyone's like we knew it was you Jane oh like god. it's yeah <laughs> um I did it but I did get the book and I was like I have to I have to read this one I'm not reading yeah. the other ones right now so I'm 
I will get back to it. You'll get back to it. But it, yeah, there's some really <laughs> funny like, um, yeah, how do we anonymize the stories? How do we tell them ethically? Mm-hmm. Um, that I think normal gossip has kind yeah, of um, figured out question. to a much better extent than this group of people. Um, well, it's easier too when you're not like one of the rules that we have that none of these people have is that like we try really hard not to use gossip that comes from someone directly connected to the gossip. Okay. Because your view is so biased. Yeah. Right. And you end up very close to the story in a way that doesn't allow you the full range. So it's kind Uh of what these characters are doing, right? It's like, I'm too close to this case. Yeah to see it all or like I didn't see it all at first but maybe it will be very obvious to you which is right it's fun yeah I I also love that sometimes because the way they tell these stories you know it's like oh it was someone who we met a few times and we went to their like country estate Mm -hmm. Um, but then at the end there'll be some line about like and I don't know why but I guess he took a liking to me and a few months later he wrote me a a confessional letter that told me the entire reason why he'd done it and it was like you know it's Mm. like these kind of like pat little (laughs) ways of how they figured out how they personally know the the answer to the The mystery that nobody else knows Um, I think that in like in the Miss Bantry's case at one point she like there's a story like that where she says like yeah the man just like took a liking to me and told me that he'd committed murder Um, must be nice (laughs) must be nice I know (laughs) to be a person who just has that kind of face people just come up and confess hand their secrets right over to you thank you I will take them Mm -hmm. Um, but let's talk about Christie's gossip outside of her writing because Mm -hmm. she has a great hot goss story Um, In 1926, Agatha Christie disappeared for 11 days. And you have written a little bit about this. Do you want to tell us your take on the story? I just love this story because I encountered it when I was too young to, like, know that people lied, right? Like, I was, like, on Tumblr, and I was, like... Tumblr? I on, no, not I was Tumblr. on the internet way too, way too much as a child. And I discovered this story, and, you know, the, the excuse they have always given for Christie's disappearance in which she flees, leaves her child with a maid, drops her car off, essentially, at, like, a quarry. Yeah. Leaves the headlights on and, like, her Like, balancing on a rock. Gone. Like, yeah. Yeah. Terrifying. Yeah. And the excuse they've always given is like, oh, she entered a fugue state, right? Like she entered a fugue state and then she checked herself into a hotel. Yeah. And then you get a little older and you're like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> she had a ha- she had a big fight with her husband where he revealed that he was having an affair. And then he was like, cool, I'm going for a weekend away with my mistress. Yeah. And also I'd like a later. divorce. Yeah. And also, I'd like a divorce. And then Chrissy checked herself into a hotel using the last name of the woman he had an affair with. Right. I'm like, I don't know about this fugue state shit. Like, that seems like a lie to me. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think we can say fugue state. I think for sure, I don't, you know, I mean, obviously, we don't know. It seems to me that she definitely we'll had know. some kind of like, breakdown break yeah for sure a breakdown whether it was just like she was so upset she had to get out of wherever I think you know sometimes some of the details get more lost of it because you know she went to this hotel and it was a spa in Harrogate like a hydro one of those hydro hotels (laughs) 
Which, if I was going away, like, I would also choose to go to a spa in Yorkshire. <laughs> Me having a, a quote-unquote mental break and checking myself into, like, a five-season I know, somewhere. I'm, like, wrapped in seaweed like I am in a food yeah. state. Um, <laughs> I'm broken. <laughs> put me back together with clay. Um, yeah, I accidentally bought a $600 massage. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I break down. I don't know how you break down, but... You know, but she also, like, wrote to her brother-in-law and said, by the way, I'm at a spa in Harrogate. Yeah. Um, and, and was like, please tell, please tell your brother. Tell everyone. Yeah, tell everyone. And I think, part, you know, part of it obviously was she wanted to worry her husband. She was obviously mm-hmm. incredibly upset. He's having an affair. He's she, – because she also was, like – uh, like incredibly in love with Archie Christie. She was really, yeah. really obsessed with him in a way that she never later was with another man, you know, and, yeah. and she had a wonderful husband afterwards who she was with for a very long time, but she was like really obsessed with Archie Christie and he really broke her heart. Um, so yeah. I totally buy that she was like, I got to get out of here. I think when you have a seven-year-old, maybe you like chill a little <laughs> bit, like take a minute, but like, okay, so she had her breakdown. <laughs> But then there was a police officer on the case um, who kind Mm -hmm. of decided to make it into something that it wasn't and be like, this is my big moment. And Archie Christie has definitely murdered her. And, you know, this Miss Neal has definitely (laughs) murdered her. And or she killed herself or whatever. He like really ran with the press and was really enjoying kind of the like art imitates life element of Mm -hmm. it. Um, So I think. The fact that she did something incredibly dramatic paired with the fact that it happened to be a police officer who really was like, yeah, we're going whole hog with the drama. Um, (laughs) Paired with the fact that her brother-in-law, I guess, never told anybody. (laughs) Like that. Honestly, classic brother-in-law behavior. Classic brother-in-law. Got it. You're at a hotel. I'll just not tell anyone about this as it becomes a national news story. Yeah, and he was also, he also was like a very (laughs) mentally ill, like kind of a wild guy. So I don't know why he's the one you trust to tell people, but anyway, she did. And um, yeah, so it's, it is, it's taken on a life of its own uh, as a story. Why do you think that is? Hmm. I mean, it, the first thing I'm thinking about is just that, like, like most mystery and murder unsolved case podcasts and stories, it is just, like, evident from the get-go that the police have, like, not done a good job, right? right. That, like, their <laughs> interference has created more problems than right. necessary. And that is, like, the first lesson, I think, from this tale, right? Is this that, is like, a defund oh, the a police tale. It. Yes, yeah. it is. <laughs> it's like, oh... We're missing one of our, like, country's great novelists. Let's right. put someone on it that's going to sensationalize it, call all the tabloids, and tell them that maybe her husband did it. It's like, right. why don't you text everyone? Or I guess you can't text them. But why don't you go to everyone's everyone. house who knows her get on and Tumblr, be like, do you get know on where Facebook. she is? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, instead of running, while it is a good assumption that usually it's the husband that did it, you should probably, I don't know, check the hotels nearby. Right. If you've any, if you've ever read even <laughs> one of Agatha Christie's books, you know that like only half the time the husband did it. Yeah. The other half of the exactly. time you're at a spa in Harrogate with the name Teresa Neal pretending to be a South African. I mean, this is what it is. But, but this is kind of like coming back to what we were talking about earlier, right? Which is like the difficulty in separating the art from the yeah. artist, right? Yeah. Is that like... 
well, if Agatha Christie is missing, she must have been murdered is like a kind of, it is a symbiotic thing. Yeah. Where it's like, well, every time I read Agatha Christie, there's a murder. So if she's in the news, right. she must be dead. Right. right. Like it's this kind of like assuming yes. correlation. But yeah. I mean, it seems like it worked out pretty well for her because- Long term, she got quite a lot of press out of this. Yeah, she seemed, career, and she seems but. like she did fine. But I think, you yeah. know, well, and also what's interesting about it, as you say, totally symbiotic. And while I think she maybe at the beginning was like, I'm just having my breakdown. Please just let me be at yeah. my spa. She really, um, she let the mystery kind of play out over the course of her life. She never spoke about it. And she also didn't write about it in her autobiography at all. Yeah. So to have that kind of national attention and that kind of huge moment happen mm-hmm. and, like, ignore it in your autobiography, I mean, it would be in my autobiography and I about about her. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of crazy. I wonder, like, not to be, like, an Agatha Christie character and bring my own perspective to this, but I wonder <laughs> if it, on some level, is, like, she didn't get a lot of privacy Right. And like the choice to withhold Mm. the worst days of your life, I think is the valid one in general. Right. Like, I don't think you have to talk about your husband leaving you for someone and like you trying to have three nights in a hotel and then ending up becoming a national (laughs) news story. Like that seems very terrible. Traumatic. Yeah. Um, And traumatic. Yeah. It seems like the kind of thing that would haunt you. And like then... On top of that, having your business be everyone's business. Yeah. Right? Whereas, like, if you are not reported missing, maybe you get to have your four days at a hotel and come home and, like, live your life. Right. Yeah. And I think it's also worth adding that right before this happened, her mother died. And she was extremely close to her mother. Like, they had a very, very codependent relationship. So I think that also would have precipitated whatever happened um, in a big way. And. And it's like when you become, this has never happened to me and like knock on wood, it doesn't. But when you become the kind of like vehicle of a conversation, regardless of your interest in it, mm-hmm. it that is not helping you. Yeah. Right? And so like in the situation where your mother has died, your husband is now leaving you, you're having a full breakdown and you check yourself into a hotel. It's not like she wanted this attention. So mm-hmm. she reported herself missing. No, she didn't. Right? Like she told someone where she was and yeah. tried to be private. So it makes sense to me that she didn't want to talk about it. But also I resent her for not talking <laughs> about it because I would like to know. Yeah. No, totally. And yeah, as you say, nobody owes us um, their trauma for sure. And I, you know, I think. And also I want it. But yeah, like, but also please the... share it with me. Um, <laughs> no, but but I think also. One of the things about Christie's work, and I've like heard this from other authors as well, is that she has such a wall up about who she is. And as we've talked about, mm-hmm. like on this podcast a bit, she there are things that kind of come through in terms of like neuroses or yeah. um, insecurities, but she doesn't really share who she is. And in fact, takes really a lot of steps to give us smoke screens. It. Yeah. yeah. Um, and like my favorite example of it is the writer Ariadne Oliver, who appears in a lot of the Poirot books um, because she was kind of thought of as this like foil or the proxy of Agatha Christie. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really Agatha Christie's way of basically saying like, 
if you want to imagine what it's like to be a mystery writer, I'm going to give you this. She has nothing to do with me. Um, yeah. But people kind of gobbled that up. And um, so I think that's really, really fascinating. And um, yeah, maybe speaks to while she might love gossip in the context of her work, mm-hmm. she doesn't love it about herself. Yeah, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's an interesting choice, right? Because on some level, if you don't answer the question, you fuel the fire, right? Right. So by never saying anything, we are still having this conversation. right? Whereas had she come out and said, yeah, those were the worst three days of my life, and then yeah. they were turned into a media storm, and now yeah. I'm miserable, we might have felt a lot of sympathy for her, and maybe we're not talking about it. Yeah. So on some level, I'm like, oh, she's a PR genius. <laughs> like, yeah. By I think she was. By maintaining a mystery around who you are mm-hmm. as a mystery writer, yeah. it's like an Alina Ferrante PR move, right? right of totally. Like, part of the story is who I am. Yeah. I would also say, though, if she'd come out in 1926 and said, you know, oh, this yeah, was no. a big trauma and da-da-da-da-da, <laughs> no. people would have been like, oh, a hysterical woman. Yeah, um, everyone would have been like, check her in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, I think even – and even in the – if she said it in the 70s, people would have said, oh, yeah. a hysterical woman. Um, so I, I do think part of her protectiveness of herself was because she knows how the public reacts to Perceives. women specifically. Yeah. Um, sharing yeah. trauma or sharing their lives. So, um, you know, I think that's part of it too. But um, – <laughs> Kelsey, thank you so much for being here and talking gossip and Agatha Christie, like two of my favorite things in the whole world at one time. Thank you for having me. It was an absolute <laughs> delight. I've had so much fun. I'm, I'm like so surprised glad. that we're done because I'm like, oh, I have, you know, 17 other things to say, which is beautiful. I, I would <laughs> love to hear all 17 of them. But first, where can people find you? It, or would you I'm... like to be found and where could they find you? Um, yes, you can find me to the amount I am willing to be found on <laughs> all social medias yeah. at, at McKinney Kelsey. Cool. And, uh, and also at your fantastic podcast, Normal Gossip. Yep. Yes, which you can listen to wherever you listen to podcasts. Yep. Um, and also I have a novel, if you like fiction, it's called God Spare the Girls. Yeah, fabulous. Thank you so much. We're going to have uh, links to the book and normal gossip in the episode notes so please check those out there follow kelsey so you can hear she shares secrets on sundays on her instagram so go get them (laughs) get them while they're hot they're hot secrets kelsey thank you so much for being here again and uh i hope that you have a great day thank you so much for having me you too Thank you to our producer, Kate Crischel, and our sound engineer, Winter Robinson. If you want to support this podcast, you can follow us on Instagram at Tea and Murder. You can rate and review us on iTunes, and you can tell all your friends and even strangers to follow us on your podcast platform of choice. Our next book is Cards on the Table, and you can get started reading right away with the link in the episode notes. You can rent it from your local library, buy from your local independent bookseller, or if you need to buy online, we recommend bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores with every purchase. A link for next week's book can be found in the episode notes. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tea and Murder. We hope you had a bracing dose of both.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.